Hello and welcome to the first installment of Trust Us, Alan and Overy's APAC Corporate Trust and Agency Teams webinar series. My name is Holly Hart, I'm a member of the APAC Corporate Trust and Agency Team and I will be your host for today. I will shortly be joined by two colleagues to run you through today's two deep dives. Tim Beach, partner and head of the APAC Corporate Trust and Agency Team, with whom I'll be talking about the current defaults landscape, followed by my fellow associate, Katie Signey, to discuss some of the technical issues we have seen arise with the use of standby letters of credit in the market, i.e. the ABCs of SBLCs. So we've blocked out 30 minutes in your calendars, but we're gonna to aim to keep this tight and let you all get on with your busy days as quickly as possible. In saying that, let's get started with my first co-presenter for today, he who needs little introduction, Mr. Tim Beach. Hey, Tim. Hi, Holly. Shall we just dive straight in? Absolutely. Right, we are very much in the thick of things with respect to APAC bond defaults at the moment. We're seeing the first major offshore defaults coming out of the PRC in which we're actively involved, including subsequent PRC onshore reorganizations. We're also seeing defaults in Indonesia, Australia, Singapore, truly widespread across the region. And it appears that this might just be the beginning of a busy time in the defaults and restructuring space. Can you give our guests today your bird's eye view of what's going on in the market? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Holly. And welcome again to everyone that's joined us on the webinar today. Obviously, we're very keen to see you all in person again uh, as soon as we possibly can. But in the meantime, we hope you're going to find these webinars of, of interest. As you mentioned, Holly, it's been a very interesting time lately with the balance of our work over the last few months shifting in favour of more defaults and restructuring and away from the new money work. That's not to say that new bonds aren't being issued. They certainly are. But following a, a roughly six to eight week period back in around March, April time when we barely saw a new bond, the volumes are certainly still down compared to what we typically expect at this time of year. And conversely, the default work is, is up. Um, to give some context, in 2019, uh, we were instructed on 12 new bond defaults from, from across the whole region, which was a significant uptick on 2018, in, both in terms of the number and the scale of the defaults. In year to date, 2020, we've been instructed on a further eight. And much of the work that we're currently doing is on the formal restructurings of, of last year's Chinese defaults, such as uh, Peking University Founder Group, Qinghai Provincial and Tiwu Group. Given the time it takes to formulate a major restructuring of entities like that, the most recent defaults will take some time to get to that next stage. So I think we're gonna be doing this kind of work for, for some time to come. Um, one thing that's particularly interesting about the companies that, that I just mentioned is how large and high profile they are in China. It's not that long ago that SOEs were often considered to have a, an implicit state guarantee. The fact that we've seen SOEs of that scale being allowed to default and restructure really emphasizes that a guarantee that isn't written down in the bond documents probably doesn't exist. Great advice there. Um, in particular, as you just mentioned, we've been involved with court supervised reorganizations for PRC companies. What are some of the challenges we have seen our clients on behalf of their holders come up against and further, what are some of the sensitivities that trustees can expect when dealing with onshore administrators? Yeah, of course, the key challenge at the moment is that there's very little precedent or experience of how this type of reorganization procedure works in the context of offshore bonds, simply because so few of them have happened so far. Uh, the issue of precedent is also very interesting in the PRC because PRC law doesn't recognise precedent value of previous court jurisdictions in the way that you see in, in a common law jurisdiction. So there's no guarantee that subsequent reorganisations will follow the same procedures that, that, that we're going through now in any event. 
but there will certainly be, be, be commonalities. And some of the key issues that we've seen in the reorganization so far uh, include uh, who files the declaration of creditor rights. So that is essentially the, the, the proof of debt, the, the main claim. The administrators that we've dealt with to date seem very keen for the trustee to file and not the bondholders directly, um, probably because obviously they know that there'll be a much greater workload for them if they have to deal with the bondholders filing on an individual basis. But that's no guarantee that that will be the same with every administrator. So that's something that would need to be checked very carefully each time. Uh, secondly, the, the actual filing of the declaration can be administratively very burdensome. Uh, it involves translating all of the transaction documents into Mandarin and having all of the claim paperwork, including the transaction documents, notarized and legalized. Inevitably, that makes the process very expensive, very time consuming. Um, uh, given that the, the reorganization proceedings generally are only allowing about eight weeks or so as a maximum from the time the reorganization is opened to the filing deadline, there's very little time in practice for the trustee to try to get holders lined up to give it instructions and, and funding for the claim filing process. And finally, uh, the administrators we're often seeing are wanting to know the details of our underlying holders, even though we're filing as the creditor. In most circumstances, obviously, that information isn't even available to the trustee, even if it was comfortable to provide it. And points um, that we're, we're experiencing of that nature are often requiring quite a lot of education to be done by the trustee and its lawyers to explain to the administrators that the trustee isn't being unhelpful. It's rather that it just doesn't have the information that, that they're looking for. And there's one other interesting issue that I'll just flag here, uh, which is the use of keep well deeds in, in Chinese bond structures. I'm not going to go into detail on it now because it's something we'll come back to in a subsequent session. But it's worth noting that the question of the validity and enforcement of keep wells has become a central issue in one of the ongoing reorganizations, uh, that of Peking University Founder Group. And subject to the outcome of that process, we may well see the use of keep wells in the PRC market radically change going forward. Yeah, yeah, the keep well is something to uh, keep in view going forward. Um, look, at the top, I mentioned uh, earlier both Indonesia and Australia uh, and activity in the default space. Can I get your thoughts on the rest of the region? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we, we've recently completed the PKPU reorganization proceedings of the Duniatex group in, in Indonesia, which was a major pre-COVID-19 default. We haven't seen any other recent major bond defaults coming out of Indonesia recently, although yeah, if you look at the press, it looks as though modern land realty might be the next significant default and restructuring from there. Uh, interestingly, it is rumoured that modern land might seek to restructure itself in Singapore rather than Indonesia, taking advantage of the new Singapore restructuring regime. So we'll watch that one with interest. The big news, of course, you know, as you know from your uh, your home country in Australia, has been uh, Virgin Australia, which entered uh, voluntary administration earlier in April after it was effectively grounded by COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, as we anticipated from the outset, that's been a very high profile matter with a great deal of public press and, and political interest. And at times it's been a controversial restructuring with competing stakeholder groups looking to maximize their returns. And obviously, you know, the trustee often finds itself caught somewhat in the middle of, of, of those competing interests. 
that matters now approaching a, a critical phase with a creditor vote on the way um, out of the administration being scheduled for 4th of September. So hopefully we'll get some resolution on that one soon. And, and elsewhere around the region, looking at, at one of the other countries where we often see strong default flow, um, India has been notably quiet actually on the default front lately uh, with our ongoing default work all, all being pre-virus. And we've seen those existing defaults and restructurings moving pretty slowly with court hearings and creditor meetings being pushed back. My sense is that the the harsh lockdown that's happened in India and the forbearance measures that the government's put in place have rather kept the, the default and restructuring space quiet. But I think that will change over the coming months. I, I really have no doubt that, you know, as elsewhere, to be honest, there are going to be a lot of companies in India significantly affected by the events of the last few months and, and many new defaults and restructurings to come. Yeah, yeah. It seems that we might only just be seeing the beginning of the defaults and restructuring caused by the current economic environment and that the real COVID-19 repercussions are yet to come. Do you agree with this? And, and what should we anticipate in sort of the short to medium term? Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, as I mentioned at the moment, we're busy mainly on uh, pre-virus defaults, with Virgin Australia being the one material exception. But that isn't to say that COVID-19 and the knock-on consequences is not going to lead to significant further defaults and restructurings, because I'm certain that it will. We're just not seeing them quite yet. I think there are probably a few reasons for that. One is that uh, government forbearance measures um, will have slowed things down. There's obviously been huge amounts of government money pushed into bailouts and support schemes around the world. And at the same time, governments have acted to prevent enforcement of debts in, in some circumstances. Uh, I think that those actions have doubtless reduced the immediate impact of, of the lockdown period, but actually in many cases will just have kicked the, the can down the road. Businesses that have been badly affected will still be in bad shape, I think, you know, once the money dries up. Uh, another point that's relevant, I think, is that creditors have been pretty tolerant so far. Uh, there's certainly been some sensitivity among some credit groups, for example, banks that themselves have previously been bailed out uh, to be seen as being good corporate citizens and not rushing to enforce against bad debts caused by COVID-19. I think there's more to it than that, though, um, and actually on a more pragmatic level, that these are really bad markets in which to enforce and try and sell uh, your assets that you might recover from security when valuations are low or, or unclear. So I think creditors are often just really sat tight and, and waited for markets to stabilize. And finally, I think there's the fact, simple fact that you know, there, there's a delayed impact to some of these things. So although some of the impact of the virus will have been pretty immediate, many of its economic effects will play out, I think, over a longer period. And, and you know, so companies that might be struggling have been burning through their cash reserves they may have had before uh, all of this started. At, at some point, they're going to run out uh, unless their business get, you know, manages to recover. And so you know, we'll probably see you know, more people getting into trouble as, as the cash slowly runs down. So I think those and, and probably a number of other reasons too actually are, yeah, help explain why we haven't really seen an immediate tsunami of defaults. Uh, to to uh, finish up on a slightly more positive note though, um, yeah, whilst there Please. will be, <laughs> yes, it's not all bad news. Um, there will inevitably be a, a lot of companies and industries that have been badly affected by the, the virus crisis and the global lockdowns. 
equally there will be plenty of winners you know there are there are companies in sectors that have been relatively unaffected by the virus and others for example in areas such as e-commerce or cloud computing that have really benefited from the events of the last few months so i think the companies that have remained healthy are likely to keep borrowing and and rates are probably going to remain low for for those strong credits and we could therefore see two distinct tracks emerging over the course of the next few months one of defaults and restructurings for the companies that are struggling and one of new issuance for the companies that are in good shape so i think if that happens we could all stay actually very busy servicing those two work streams well that is that is positive news for us all um no doubt we could talk about this till the cows come home um i think you've raised some really interesting topics there that we can look at um in, in future in future chats so um i will leave it there thank you very much for your time thanks holly thanks just a reminder to everyone that if you have any questions about any of the ground we've just covered, please do contact us using the Q&A chat box or via email and we'll get back to you. Moving on to our second topic for the day, the technicalities of standby letters of credits or SBLCs. To discuss this, I'm being joined today by my colleague and friend, Katie Signey. Hello, Katie. Hi, Holly. Let's get straight to it. Um, I know you have done a lot of work with this particular product, so I very much appreciate you joining me here today. We have seen a significant increase in the number of deals supported by an SBLC, particularly for Chinese issuers, at times as an alternative to a traditional guarantor structure. Further, the current uncertainty with respect to key polls that Tim and I briefly touched on leads us to believe that SBLCs might increase in use as an alternative credit enhancement feature. This rising popularity has also brought to our attention a number of issues, and today we're going to talk about just a few of them. But before we do that, can I get you to give us a really brief description of the product and the process for issuance and demand? Yeah, thank you, Holly. As you've mentioned, SBLC-backed deals do seem very popular at the moment, and as a result, we've seen a number of issues cropping up across the various deals. Just to start with the brief practicalities, the standby letter of credits are issued by an onshore bank, and at the moment, we're generally seeing that being the China onshore banks, uh, and they're issued in an amount equal to the principal and the interest accrued, and also certain expenses. Um, we'll talk about those expenses in a bit de more detail shortly. Um, in terms of logistics, on the closing date, the SBLC provider will issue the SBLC to the trustee as the beneficiary by way of SWIFT. And then similarly, in the event of any pre-funding failure during the life of the bonds, the trustee would generally use SWIFT to issue a demand to the SBLC provider to make a claim on the SBLC. Okay, well, let's let's get into the, the topic of expenses, which is quite critical for, for our clients. SBLCs usually include a fixed amount that trustees can claim. Does this amount to capped expenses in the traditional sense? So what we generally see is a cap of one million US dollars reflected in the amount covered by the SBLC and the waterfall, which restricts the amount that the trustee can apply towards its own costs and expenses from the proceeds of demand under the SBLC to a million dollars. Just to be clear, this isn't a cap on the amount the trustee can recover from the issuer and the usual uncapped language would apply, but this cap kicks in where the funds being applied are the proceeds of demand under the SBLC. We sometimes hear concerns that a million dollars seems very high for trustees' costs and expenses, and if raised, we would stress to the issuer that we don't generally envisage the costs reaching that amount, but the market just considers this to be a reasonable cap to cover any foreseeable expenses that might arise. Right, but the key takeaway to reassure our guests is that it's not a cap for the purposes of a claim against the issuer itself under the docs. 
Another point at which the expenses of the trustee has at times presented some challenges is with respect to the pre-funding requirements for payments made by the issuer under an, an SBLC back structure, which at times are expressed in the relevant T's and C's as any amount in respect to the notes and any amount payable under the trust deed. Arguably, this formulation for pre-funding includes the fees and expenses of the trustee. Can you explain why this can be seen as problematic? Yeah, so in the language you've just mentioned, any amount in respect to the notes and any amount payable under the trustee, this would clearly cover fees, cost expenses owed to the trustee under the trustee. And as the pre-funding mechanism is such an important provision, as any failure by the issuer to comply triggers the process by which the trustee would make a demand under the SBLC, it's generally something that issuers are very sensitive to. And as a result, there are several issues, we think, with the trustee's costs and expenses being included here. For example, an annual fee owed to the trustee and provided for in the trustee would generally be paid directly to the trustee when it's due without the need for any pre-funding. And this would also apply for any amount payable to the issuer under the indemnity or under the expense provisions, which we would expect to be paid directly to the trustee and not pre-funded. So whilst the trustee's fees, costs, expenses should absolutely be covered by the amount of the SBLC, our view is that that it is correct that this should not form part of the pre-funding amount and accordingly any failure would not trigger any demand under the SBLC. So consequently the relevant condition under the T's and C's that sets out the triggers by which the SBLC is drawable by the trustee should not include failure to pay the trustee's fees or expenses as a separate limb. Yes, that's right. There are two final points I would like to address that are actually commonly raised by the SBLC providers themselves. The first is with respect to the trustee's right to transfer the SBLC to any subsequent trustee, delegate or, or other prospective transferee. Can you explain the reason why we continue to push for the inclusion of relevant transfer provisions? Yeah, this has come up a lot on recent deals and we think it's problematic. The SBLC providers have asked for us to delete the provision whereby the trustee can transfer its rights under the SBLC. We push back on this on the basis that if the trustee doesn't have the right to transfer its rights, that it may be left in a position where it wants to delegate its powers or transfer to a new trustee, but it's not able to transfer the SBLC. And given the importance of the SBLC to the whole structure of the deal as a credit enhancement feature, the trustee's got to have the right to transfer the, the benefit of the SBLC. Um, when we push back on this, sometimes the SBLC LC provider asks if we can agree to only transferring with their consent and again we would advise not accepting this as a compromise position given the restriction it places on the trustee's ability to exit the deal if that consent is not forthcoming. Just as another follow-up point sometimes they focus on the word retransfer as they're happy to agree to one transfer but they don't want a situation where multiple transfers are taking place throughout the life of the bonds. Uh, We've been asked for the word retransfer to be deleted, and again, we would suggest push, pushing back on this because if a new transfer, new trustee was coming in and couldn't see a route out of the deal because they weren't able to transfer the SBLC down the line, they might not be willing to take it on in the first place. We have agreed comparable wording where the word retransfer has become a focus, but we do need the principle to remain. So there's no issue with the current trustee or any future trustee exiting the deal. Right, okay. And of course, if this arises in the course of negotiation for any of today's participants, we could certainly talk through this in greater detail.
Of course. Look, finally, SPLCs typically, typically contain clawback provisions for the benefit of the trustee. What sort of pushback do we get from SPLC providers on this language? So the market standard clawback provision is open-ended and we have some sympathy with the SBLC bank's concern on this because they don't have any definite end to their obligations under the SBLC. The way we've dealt with this is to ask the expiry date of the SBLC to be extended for longer than the typical one month post-maturity of the notes to say three or six months and then we link the clawback provisions to that extended expiry date. This way the trustee and the holders do have some some time and protection to be able to claim back any amounts that may be avoided as a result of any steps towards insolvency but it also gives the SBLC provider that certainty that they're looking for as to the end date of its obligation. Okay well thank you so much Katie I'm sure that this has been helpful to, to our participants um, you, as always there's much more that we could no doubt talk about and I promised I'd keep this quick for everyone so really appreciate you giving us such a succinct rundown thanks Katie bye. Well, everyone, that's it. Um, a big thanks to Tim and Katie for sharing the screen with me today. Thank you to the excellent team behind the scenes here, spread from Singapore to London, who have made this technically possible. And finally, of course, thank you to all of you for joining us for our first of what we hope is many more events.